If you have a Bible, again, I hope you do. I'm going to invite you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 with me this morning. For our friends and visitors, I have been preaching through this short little letter from Paul to Timothy, who was to go to a church at Ephesus and basically tell them how to behave as a church. And so we've been looking at the idea of that we are the church and how should God's people live life. Now, what we started with last week was the first Sunday of 2016, and this has been a two-parter as we are looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, specifically verses 6 to 10, and we've been trying to lay out a foundation for our year, how we as a church at Calvary Baptist, how we're going to function as a church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 10, we learned that God is calling us individually as families and as a family as the church to be men and women of the Word of God, to be students of God's Word. Now, what, what's that Bible word again? Oh, yeah, disciples. That's it. Disciples. We're called to be disciples. After all, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are supposed to be a disciple of Christ, right? A Christian. And so what we have said at Calvary Baptist for this year, 2016, our theme, our mantra is going to make this year the year of the Bible. This is going to be the year of the Bible in which we will learn it and love it and live it. We will learn God's Word, and we will learn how to love God's Word, and then we will learn how to live out God's Word as individuals, as families, and as a family in the church. Now, we learned last week how we do that, and it's really on the back of every one of your shampoo bottles or your conditioner bottles. We learned this last week, remember? Read, pray, apply, repeat. All right? It's, it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound, right? Read, pray, apply, repeat. And this is something we're going to do over and over again. We're going to talk about that. And what will the results be for this church, for me, for us in 2016, if we will do this, if we will learn God's word and love God's word and live out God's word, if we will read it and pray over it and pray through it and apply it to our lives and repeat that, you know what will happen? We will be servants and we will be a church making servants. Matthew 18, Matthew 28, 18 to 20 will not be a cliche or something you hang on the wall at home or a bookmark in your Bible, but we will go and preach the gospel and we will make disciples and we will teach each other how to obey all that God has commanded. So we are learning that our game plan as a church for the next 350 plus days now is that we will talk about, pray about, study and stir each other on towards God's Word. We want to be a people and a church who are not, I really want us to be a church, look around you, look back on these shelves. We, we, we're not, I want us to be more than a church that just has Bibles. I want us to be more than a church that just simply has Bibles. I want us to be more than just a church that can win Bible trivia games. Debbie and I, over the weekend, we went to the two different bookstores that sell religious material over at the Salvation Army and Book and Bible, and I was amazed at all the games that they have there now. And truly, Christianity has become a business. There was a game there called Bibleopoly. It's Monopoly, but it's Bibleopoly. And I stood there looking at this box, and I thought, how do you do Christianity if you go at it the way you're supposed to win Monopoly? 
which is acquire, acquire, acquire at all costs. Beat your enemies down so you win the most stuff. And then I was looking at it, and I couldn't really tell if, like, if in Bibleopoly, do you give everything away? Are you kind randomly? Like, is, is Park Place now, you know, a, a soup kitchen, or, or what is it? But it's tragic that Christianity has been boiled down to, we, we're mimicking board games now? And this is why, I know you might think, Pastor Steve, this is awfully juvenile. No, listen, you know what I think our problem is in our church, in our country, in this city, our province, in the church of Western Canada, or, or, or the West in Canada, United States? We talk a lot of Bible, but we don't know it. We know a lot of Bible, but we don't live it. And so this is what I want us to focus on today. So I want you to realize the overarching theme of your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, don't miss this, is that God, in the beginning, God. The Bible never proves God's existence. It, never, it just assumes it. God, in the beginning, God. It's a book about God. The Bible is a book about God. God created and creation fell. We messed it up. Then God, as an act of mercy and grace, extended himself through Jesus Christ, his son, to do what we couldn't do, and quite frankly, to do what we wouldn't do, which was live perfectly. We couldn't do it, we wouldn't do it, and so God would choose for himself a people to be made right with him. And so I want us to see this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 10, because next week we're going to deal with verses 1 to 5. We'll look at verses 6 to 10. Let me read verses 1 to 10. So you get the context of it. Paul, under the inspiration of God, this is God's word to us. This is God's word to us today where Paul says, now, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, that's today. The latter times, that's today, that's us. Some, some of us potentially, will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through, this is the means, the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. Now remember what we read in Romans 14? Here you see this played out. From food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now notice the caveat, verse 5, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now here's our passage as we lay a foundation, church, for the next year. If you, Timothy, put these things before the brothers, and again, if you write in your Bible, circle brothers, he means church. If you, you put this before the church, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Remember what I said, and you'll see it in, in the sermon notes on the back of the book. I don't want us to be a great church. The Bible doesn't want us to be a great church. The Bible wants us to be a good church. Remember our journey through the word good and great in the Bible? Last week, we were called to be good stewards and good servants, and we're told to have good courage, and we're to, to be about good things. And in Galatians chapter 5, goodness is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Great is the song we just sang, how great is our God. We're not to seek to be great. We're called to be good and faithful stewards and servants. And so he says, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained, notice, in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, verse 7, 
have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What he's just said, that godliness is of grain for everything. That's the trustworthy saying. Now he's going to give you your motive, verse 10. For to this end, we toil and strive. What's what the end? Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. May God have his blessing again to the reading of his word. Now, I want you to, to look at what you see there, okay? And again, if you take notes or you see this, let me give you a breakdown of verses 4 to 10 very quickly. You'll notice in verse 6, he says, point these things out to the brothers. Make this a church issue. Bring this up amongst the brothers and sisters as a church family. Then he says, be properly nourished in the faith. Notice what he said again, right? Verse 6, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So we need to be properly nourished. That's why we said last week that our, our, our thing is going to be we're going to eat right this year as a church, right? We're going to eat right. We're going to feast on God's word. Next, verse 7, stay away from false teachers. Now we're going to really dig into that next week in verses 1 to 5. We're going to really figure out what is the greatest danger to this church, to us, in regards to false teachers in 2016. Then he says, for, uh, uh, verse 7, number 4, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. Now, by virtue of the fact that he says train yourself, it must mean that some effort's involved. And I want to talk about that. And then finally, put your hope in God. Don't put your hope in yourself. Don't put it in your spouse, your kids. Don't even put it in your church. Put it in God. Only God will satisfy and so today, we're going to look at the second part of our passage. We're going to focus on what God tells us is his will, focus on what God tells us is his plan and his purpose for those to belong to him. And we're going to learn now, how do we be good servants? How do we get to the end of life, whenever that is for us, and we can hear God say, well done, thou good and faithful servants. How can we be real children of God? But I want you to know the good news of this. If we'll do this, if we'll do what we just read, if we'll obey this, do you realize what God's doing? He's going to tell us if we'll embrace this and if we'll think this way and we'll practice this, that it's for our good. It's for our protection. It's for our blessing. And, and it's for God's glory. Folks, let me tell you, you will never follow God and at the end of it be disappointed. See, you can do something nice for a friend, a spouse, your children, and you can be disappointed. But when you follow God, you will never be disappointed. I promise you that. And that's what we want to have as our mantra in 2016. Now, one of the things I do want to do, though, is I want to make sure we know the difference between exterior excellence and godliness. So, by show of hands, who of you have heard the name Pete Rose? Many of you had. Okay, what about this one? Um, Tiger Woods. A, few, a lot more names went up that time. What about Michael Jordan? There you go. We're now starting to figure some things out here. Um, this one's a bit more obscure, but I, I wanted to... How about Tanya Harding? Anybody hear that name? Yeah, there you go. Tanya Harding, the figure skater. And, of course, I had to pick these two. Donald Trump. 
Oh, look, there's a reaction. There you go. And, 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 and what about this one? Bill Clinton. Oh, I was waiting for some booze or something to come. <laughs> All right. Now, every, every, every one of these people, men and women alike, are known for being very good, if not great, at something. They are known to be great athletes, great business people, great politicians. But if you study into their lives, every one of them has some serious character flaws. Some serious character flaws. So our passage in 1 Timothy is not just calling us to a certain kind of action, do this on the outside and everything's good. What Paul is telling us, what God is telling us here today, that we're being called to a certain kind of heart. We're called to a certain kind of heart. So my number one point for us today, and we'll break it down to two things. We will, will we be a good exercising church this year? Will we be a good exercising church this year? Last year we talked, or last week, we talked about the fact of New Year's resolutions. Remember we said, what are the two most common New Year's resolutions? And you guys said, what we eat, diet, or exercise. Those are the two most common ones. And it's interesting to me that in 1 Timothy 4, Paul deals with your diet and your exercise program. So last week we looked at our diet that we need to eat on God's word. This week, we're going to look at our exercise program for 2016. What are we as a church supposed to do? Our diet and exercise. Can anything be more practical than diet and exercise? I mean, is it not the obsessive compulsive disorder of our culture today? You can't, did you know the other day on Facebook? And of course, Facebook is where all truth is told. Um, that bacon now causes cancer? Yeah. I mean, people people are going to need medication for that, all right? I read the other day that buttered carrots can be bad for you. I mean, really. I mean, we live in a world where what you eat and how you exercise, but Paul, Paul takes it to another level. Paul says to Timothy to tell the church at Ephesus to tell us that we need to be about God's Word. We need to read it. We need to know it. We need to apply it. And now in this part of our passage, he's going to give us the how and the reason. All right, so next week, as I said, we're going to go back to verses 1 to 5. But if you remember, as we've studied through this church in chapters 1 to 3, Paul basically says this, wrong doctrine leads to wrong thinking, which results in wrong living. We've been learning that right doctrine leads to right thinking, right living, and always results in right relationships. And that's what we want to look at. So this is what we need to remember. Augustine said it this way. If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Now, think about that. And think about how many people today in church do this. I, 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 like, I like what Jesus says in the gospels, but I, I, I don't like what the people say in the epistles. I once had a lady tell me, you know, I like the Bible, but I don't read anything by Paul because he was a chauvinist. Well, you've just eliminated most of your New Testament. So Augustine says, listen, if you believe what you like about the gospel and you reject what you don't like, you don't have a gospel at all. You've made yourself God. And this is what Paul is trying to get us to fight against. So notice at the end of verse 7, notice what it says. Train yourself in godliness. Train yourself. I, I was tempted to get the Rocky music to start right here. 
all right? Or I don't know if you've seen that commercial of the little mouse with, with the cheese, and he's in the mouse trap, and you think he's all dead, and then the Rocky music starts, and he starts pumping weights, and he starts pumping the, the mouse trap. It's a great video. Kids would love it. I think you've seen it, haven't you? There you go, right? But let me, let me explain this. Let me put this. Charles Spurgeon once said, and Charles Spurgeon, I will not make any, he is my favorite dead pastor to go read. I, I love Charles Spurgeon. He pointedly put it well in 1 Timothy 4. He said, men nowadays do not read their Bibles. And they have, for the most part, no religion. Oh, they have a religion which is all outside show. But they do not think of searching to see what it means, what its meaning really is. Sirs, he says, it is not the cloak of religion that will do for you. It is a vital godliness you need. It is not a religious Sunday. It is a religious Monday. It is not a pious church. It is a pious closet. It is not a sacred place to kneel. It is a holy place to stand in all day long. There must be a change of heart. It must be real, radical, vital, and entire. That sums up 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 10 very well. See, Paul's not simply saying, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. It's a little bit more complicated than the old Sunday school song, all right? He's not talking about some out-of-body experience. One of the old church Puritan fathers, Thomas Watson, said, the hypocrite deceives others while he lives, but deceives himself when he dies. That's why the old Southern gospel song says, a lot of people singing about heaven ain't going there. We got to have the right diet but we've got to have the right exercise program. We literally need to train ourselves, our passage says. And for those of you that did our life group when we did the book of Philippians, remember Matt Chandler told us that living a godly life is actually not natural. It needs to be supernatural. You're not going to wake up and want to do it. You've got to practice it. You've got to work at it. Think again of sports. Think about all the practicing you have to do. I picked on Ben a little bit there last week and, and talked about him training in karate and all those things. You don't get to be a black belt in karate by just showing up saying, you know, I think I'll try out that black belt thing. No, it comes from weeks and months and hours of practice, making your body, training your body to do something it doesn't normally want to do. And you guys know about this. I, I, I get the illustration that Chandler used in his Philippian study even about an address. We've been living back in the city of St. John's now for almost exactly a year. It'll be a year and three days, exactly a year and three days that we moved here. And so we live over in Ken Mount Terrace. And the way our, our house is, when we leave our house to go up onto that main drag, you can go uh, to come here to church, I always have to go right. But if I want to go up that way of Ken Mount Road, it's quicker and easier for me to go left and come out at the upper end. I cannot tell you how many times... I have been going to my in-laws, gone to the top of that hill. My mind has just been doing what I have been training it to do, which is go right. And how often I go right and not left. And the only way I go left is if I stop and really think about where I'm going. And too many Christians, when it comes to God's word, when it comes to being godly, we put our minds in neutral and hope for the best. We are living life reacting to the day-to-day -day things of the world instead of really engaging our brains, engaging our hearts, and thinking about God's word and thinking about what that means. We have to do this. So you and I need to be good at practicing godliness this year. We have to be as a church. We have to be. I, I don't know if you realize this. There are 15 occurrences of godliness in the New Testament. 13 of them, 13 of the 15 are in 1 Timothy 2 Timothy, 
and Titus. Nine of them are in 1 Timothy. And it's interesting that to me because 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are the three letters that Paul wrote at the last of his life. Which makes me think that as Paul got older, as he started coming to the end of his life, he, he was realizing godliness is important. Being godly. So we have to train we have to train in our godliness. And Paul illustrates it with the body and exercise. And that's just as true today, right? Think about exercising. The truth is it's not natural to do exercising, right? How many of you get up and go, I can't wait to exercise? Because if one of you puts your hand up, I'm going to go liar, liar, pants on fire. All right? Um, back, uh, back before we moved here, uh, I know you think I'm the bastion of, of just physique. Um, but I need to lose a serious amount of weight. I'm going to see a cardiologist in two weeks, and I'm probably going to lose most of the fun food I enjoy when I do that. But about a year ago, I went to this thing called third-degree training, which is I paid somebody money to get up at 5.30 in the morning to be at this place at 6. So this little girl and this dude that are weighed about 150 pounds combined for 50 minutes could yell and scream at me. And we did this circuit training thing, and we all got in a big circle, and we had to do jumping jacks and push-ups and stuff. And I, I mean, I was a sweaty mess, and I was doing it, and I had to laugh because when they would tell you to drop down and do push-ups, I'd drop down, and I'd go, I'd do a very confident one and then a pathetic two, okay? But then this little pipsqueak would come next to me and go, no, no, Steve, do five more, 20 more, and yell in my ear. I had a headache by the time I was done. And, and I would say, I'm trying to do more, but my body won't do it. No, no, tell your mind to tell your body. I've never figured that out. <laughs> and we would do that, and I would go home, and Debbie will tell you this. For the first three weeks I went to third-degree training, I would go home, and I would have to call Debbie into the bathroom, and I would stand there like this, and I'd go, Honey, will you take my shirt off? <laughs> I couldn't dress myself. I had to get my wife to help me put my shirt on and stuff like that because that was not, not my, everything in my body said, don't do this. This is not good for you. But I needed it. I needed it. I had to practice it. I needed to do this. But here's the thing. I don't want anybody to leave here today and not understand. I find in church lately, we get into the abstract. We talk about godliness and everybody says godly. What is godliness? In fact, I, in my studies, I found out that every philosophy and every culture had a definition and a version of what it meant to be godly. And if you guys, for some of you that are older, I, I'll be 44 in a few days, and uh, so I guess I'm officially middle-aged. But I do remember as a kid being with my mom and dad or being with my grandparents, and somebody would be walking down the street, and they would talk about said person. But every now and then, my grandfather, my grandmother would say, He's a God-fearing man. Have you ever heard that? That's a God-fearing man. That's a God-fearing woman. And I remember as a kid going, how do you know that? They're just walking down the street. What made them that? And you know what? In the church, we use these expressions. We've got this Bible language. We need to be godly. But what is godliness? What does it mean to be godly? It's no good for you to go agree with me if you don't know what it is. I think John MacArthur does a great job of explaining this. He says, Godliness is a right attitude and response toward the true creator God. Godliness is a preoccupation from the heart with holy and sacred realities. Godliness, it is respect for what is due to God and is thus the highest of all virtues. 
Now, stare at that and ask yourself, Lord, is that me? Do I want to be that? Do I train for that? Do I practice to be that? Where, Lord, I want to I have a right attitude and I want to respond towards you, the true creator God. Tomorrow morning as I get ready for work, I want to have a preoccupation with my heart for what's holy and sacred even as I go to work. As I intermingle with my family or my neighbors or my friends, I want to have a respect for what is due to you, God. And I want that to be the highest part of my life. Let me walk you through it. In 1 Timothy 6, 3, godliness is said to be the heart of truth. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Brother Daniel, one of our elders, is preaching through 2 Peter, which Daniel is preaching. It says that godliness comes from Christ. You can only get godliness from Christ. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, it balances teaching and the, that believers must pursue godliness. In Acts chapter 3, verse 12, we are told that godliness brings power, while 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, tells us being godly brings trouble. You will suffer for godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5 and 6 says that godliness with contentment is great gain. It brings eternal blessings. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, here's the difference between godly grief and fake or worldly grief. He says this, as it is, I rejoice, but not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you so you know you're being godly when it drives you to god when it drives you towards the things that god wants for you when it drives you towards his word you know you're pursuing godliness godliness is the heart and soul of christian character it's the aim of christian living we are called to exercise to train yourself the word train in our passage in verse 7 means gymnasium it, it's training. It's highly expressive. But this godliness comes from an understanding of God's word. The old Puritan revivalist George Whitfield said this, two things I would earnestly recommend to, you'd con- recommend to your constant study, the book of God and your own heart. Read it, pray it, apply it, repeat. Read, pray, apply, repeat. John Stott said this, we cannot become familiar with this godly book without becoming godly ourselves. We have to be a people of God's word and then we have to apply God's word. And so godliness is not some passive abstract thing. It's not some weird liturgical hypnosis of your mind. It's not. It's awestruck action. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6 when, when Isaiah is there and he has the vision of God's uh, heaven, his throne, and he sees God in all of his glory and his splendor, and Isaiah says, oh, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm unworthy and I'm undone. And God sends his angel with a coal from the altar and touches his lips. And when he's awestruck, what happens? He says, here am I in Isaiah 6, 8. Send me. There was awe and then action. Here am I. Send me. You want to know if you're being godly? 
Are you in awe of God, and is that awe leading you to do something, to be a certain way? Godliness is not piety. It's not like upheld eyes and, and folded hands and where we kind of moan or chant or groan. That's not godliness. Godliness flows into obedience throughout the week, and only God-struck doers of the word can claim to be godly. Samuel said in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. But then he did something with it. In fact, in 1 Samuel, we have some very sober words. I decided that I would start 2016 reading narrative. So I started in 1 Samuel, and I'm reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. And in the New Testament, I started reading the book of Acts. I just wanted to read some narrative. And I was fascinated as I was reading about Eli the high priest who had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were also priests in the church and they were doing everything on the outside. But the Bible tells us that they were wicked, evil young men. They were taking bribes and they were living very evil lives and all this. And Eli knew about it, but he wasn't doing anything about it. And so God comes to Samuel and Samuel says, speak, Lord, for thy servant hears. And God tells Samuel, here's what's going to happen to Eli and his boys. And Samuel has to go tell Eli this. And he's a bit apprehensive because it wasn't good news. And so Samuel goes, and Eli says, no, no, whatever God says, you tell me. And so Samuel has to tell him, Eli, God says, your sons are worthless for they don't know God. I have to tell you, in the long time it's been since I've read 1 Samuel, that really struck me in in the first part of this year when I was thinking about God's standard to deliberately be around him and not know him, God says is to be worthless. That's a sobering reality. And so this is about knowing God's word versus obeying God's word. And Paul, in our passage, he refers in the New Testament to being a soldier, being an athlete, being a farmer, even a boxer. And it all involves work, and it all involves effort, and it all involves practice. And quite frankly, it means pushing against your flesh, pushing, pushing back against that mindset that says, now take it easy. You'll be okay. You've got this. No, we won't. In 2 Timothy, Paul says to this, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. I've been fortunate enough to have a couple of cousins and my father-in-law who both served in the army. My father-in-law served in the Korean War, and I've had many chats with him about this. And he's told me that when he was on his way over to Korea and ready to fight, he did not sit there with his battalion and think, I wonder, did I balance my checkbook? He didn't get himself entangled in civilian pursuits. He was about to go fight for his life and the lives of his brotherhood on either side of him and for the lives of those that were depending on them to defend freedom. And this was the things they were doing. So he says, look, they don't get, a soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Why? Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Then he gets athletic. He says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And I love how Paul says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul makes it very clear what the application is. Think. In the Corinthians, he says this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Do you know what Paul is saying there? Paul, does a, Paul is saying, listen, I don't call myself a boxer, and all I do is shadow box. He, he's basically saying, I don't go over here and see a shadow of myself cast and just do this and go, man, I'm a great boxer. No, no, he says, I don't do that. That would be stupid. How can I call myself a boxer? A boxer is someone who boxes, who gets in a ring and faces a real opponent and, and takes the risks and the challenge, and he does it. So he says, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is to train. Now, because I can see some of the concerned looks on your faces, I want you to realize I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about, all right, Pastor Steve now is going to start telling us, give us a list of do's and don'ts. No, I'm not. Tim Keller, who pastors uh, in New York City, writes, the irreligious don't repent, don't repent at all, and the religious only repent of sins, but Christians repent of their wrongfully placed righteousness. Christians don't just try to say sorry for what they've done wrong. Christians go to God in godly repentance and say, even when I've tried to please God for my own selfish desires, I repent. I want you to understand this. When it comes to spiritual matters, we often hesitate, don't we? Now think about this, the whole eating exercise thing, all right? If, if I went to Forrest, all right, sorry, Forrest, I've got to move it over one from Ben to you. And I said to Forrest, Forrest, I want you to be my buddy. Hold me accountable. I need to lose 40 pounds. And I want you to hold me accountable. None of you would have a problem with Forrest coming to me every day and going, listen, man, did you exercise? What did you eat? Did you get to the gym today? Listen, man, don't miss up on this. Don't screw this up. Did you drink Pepsi today? You would, none of you would go, listen, boy, that, that Forrest, he's some legalist. You'd be like, that's exactly what he needs to be for me, right? But how come when we talk about spiritual matters, now that's being a legalist. What if I said to Daniel, I'm struggling with being a father. Would it be wrong for him to come to me and say, listen, man, did you spend time with your kids this week? Have you, did you take your daughter out on a daddy-daughter date? Did you spend time praying with your kids over your kids? That's not legalism. That's friendship. That's brotherhood. That's us being a church. So I find it fascinating in the world. It's okay to be sergeant majors when it comes to exercise or diet, but don't dare do that in the church. Now let me tell you what legalism is. Legalism is self-centered. Godly discipline is God-centered. All right? The legalistic heart says, I will do this so I can get favor from God. But the disciplined heart says, no, I will do this because I'm loved by God and I want to please him. And Paul knew the difference. One of my dear friends, often if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, I, I love my dear friend and brother, Scotty Smith, who's a pastor in Nashville. He put it like this, believing our obedience merits anything from God or believing our obedience means nothing to God, both contradict the gospel. So whether you think your obedience means nothing or that your obedience means everything, you haven't gotten the gospel. All right? The gospel is what God has done. Godliness is how you and I respond to it. 
He goes on to say this, Jesus never said, if you obey my commandments, I will love you. But a lot of professing Christians think that way. We really treat God like a Greek God. We got to get on his good side. If we find the right formula that pleases him and makes him happy, then he'll give us good stuff. That's not it. He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. John 14, 23, and I love this. He says, a huge difference, a huge difference. So Paul fought legalism more than anyone in the New Testament. He called Timothy and churches and us to fight and to run and to train and to exercise in verse 10 of our passage, to strive and to toil. All of these are action words, but he didn't mean legalism. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, notice this, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now, this call to train ourselves into godliness, in verse 10, to toil and strive, it's not only not legalism, but also, folks, it's a security against hypocrisy. And I feel I gotta get this out before I clue this up. See, hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. You all know that, right? I'm a hypocrite when I, I say this, but I do this. That's being a hypocrite. Being a sinner is I struggle with stuff, but I'm going to be honest about it, and I'm not content with my struggle. I want to be better. That's, that's being a sinner, okay? And I don't know if you saw this, but R.C. Sproul put this out there. One of the groups that did these studies, one of the top 10 objections to Christianity that the world says is out there is that the church is supposedly filled with hypocrites. And so that's why nobody wants to come to church. And people who are watching the lives of church members throughout the week said they're turned off from Christianity because they believe Christians don't live out their profession. Now, admittedly, the church is full of sinners, right? I love this. R.C. Sproul said, in fact, I know of no other organization in the world that requires a person to be a sinner in order to join it. We want you to come and admit you're a sinner, to be here, all right? But that does not necessarily mean if I claim to do some, if I claim that I don't do something sinful and then I do it, now I'm a hypocrite. But if I don't claim that I'm perfect and I do things wrong. Now I'm just being a sinner. And we need to see the difference. Train yourself to be godly. Our diet is to be the scriptures. We are to exercise ourselves in them. We, we will become godly only through the most godly book ever written, and that's God's own word. So if you say one thing and do another, yes, you're a hypocrite. And you know what? Here's the thing, and this is why you've heard me say this. Isn't it funny about addiction? If someone's addicted to alcohol or someone's addicted to drugs or someone's addicted to gambling and they finally admit it and they get help for it, but then they go out and you see them and let's say they struggle. You see them somewhere where they have a drink. We even have a word for that in, in our cliches. of the world. We don't say, well, he's a hypocrite. No, we'll say, you know what? He struggles with alcohol. He fell off the wagon, right? Don't we have these expressions? I've been, I've been 10 days sober. I've been on the wagon. When if you drink again, you fell off the wagon. 
But it's funny that Christians, see, sometimes are we trying to say that godliness means we're perfect? No, godliness is the admission, I'm not perfect, but I want to go and run towards the one who is. And so would it not be a help for us as a church if we start admitting, I'm a sin addict. I'm addicted to sin. God saved me in June of 1993, and I've been struggling with my sin addiction ever since. And by the grace of God, I don't sin like I did then, but I still sin. And I got to run to him every day, over and over and over again. And you know what? That's the definition of godly. When you call it what it is, you're not satisfied in it, and you run back to God's word, and you run back to prayer, and you run back to the community of faith, and you say, Lord, would you help me? You see, godliness, Paul says in verse 8, has value for all things. See, bodily exercise has some value, so I don't have the ability to say nobody should exercise, all right? But I would really love to know how many of us in this room right here right now say I spend as much time on my spiritual self as I do on my physical self. How much time do we spend thinking about spiritual things like we do about our physical appearance? Godliness has value for all things. We're just learning that now. In fact, if you talk to medical people, why, why is it we even talk about laughter? What do we say about laughter? Laughter is the best what? Best medicine. We have figured out these things, you know. You, we now know there's a great physical danger to hanging on to our anger or hanging on to our resentment or refusing to forgive or being impatient all the time or other sinful attitudes, that these things will affect you spiritually. They'll expect also affect you physically. We know that if we try to hide our sin or we lie about our sin or we try to run from God or run from each other or run from the truth, church, we pile up guilt and shame and it affects us physically. And folks, I have to say it, much of the depression of today, the anxiety of the day, the insomnia of today, the upset stomachs of today, the paranoia of today, the irritability of today, if you really look at it for professing Christians, stems from a lack of godliness. It stems from a lack of godliness. Read Psalm 32. David says in Psalm 32, who can stand before God? He says, when I was hiding my adultery and I was hiding my murder and I wouldn't go to, he said, my bones dried up. My heart was like wax. And he he said, I I, I suffered at at this not dealing with it. But when I finally confessed it and I repented and I went to God, he says, that's when you tell us we're godly. And that's what you will read about over and over again. That's why James tells us in James chapter 5 that if you're sick, call for the elders. Get get together and have them pray. He says, therefore, in in James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Remember what the proverb says? The righteous are as bold as a lion, but the liar is always looking over his shoulder. And this is what we need to learn. All of God's guidance through the word is for our well-being. And so you and I need to be good at understanding what motivates us. And I conclude with this. D.A. Carson said this, people don't drift towards holiness. You're not going to just wake up and drift towards it. I'm not going to lose 40 pounds by getting up and hoping for it every day. I won't just drift towards it. What I drift towards is a bottle of cold Pepsi. That's what I drift towards. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness or prayer or obedience to Scripture or faith and delight in the Lord. 
He says, we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Oh, church, let's not do that in 2016. We must exercise ourselves into godliness. As Philip Ryken says, it takes godly training as well as good teaching to make a good minister. The only way to counteract this is to think eternally, not simply temporally. We read God's word and we pray it and we apply God's word and we strive and we toil and we practice godliness. Why? Look at verse 10. Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We do this because we have a Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Tim Keller says, help me to know the joy of obedience and the fearlessness that goes with it. You don't have to be afraid when you're pursuing God. You don't have to look over your shoulder. We do this because we're loved and we're forgiven and we're kept and we're empowered and we're assured. We do this because we've experienced and tasted and felt the warm freedom of grace and mercy. And we do this because we've been set free from fear and shame and guilt and regret. We've been saved from the power of sin to grace and love and mercy. We're filled with God's spirit. You know what being a godly person looks like? It gives you a very simple life. Because now you're focused. You know what your yes should be. You know what you should say no to. It gives you a transcendent life because you'll be strong and able to rise above sin. It gives you an important life because now you're living for what really matters. It gives you a model life because now you can live something that others can look at and say, that's a God-fearing man. That's a God-fearing woman. And it doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're chasing the one who is. It's an honorable and therefore a peaceful life. It's a big life. Your life is not trivial. You matter because God created you. But most importantly, it's a life that's useful to God. So Calvary Baptist Church, do you know what the extra good news is? We don't just get saved and forgiven. We get a new life. We get new power. We get a new purpose. So what will your 2016 be like for you? Where will your priorities be? See, you can live for anything and everything, and many of us do. But if you do that, all of your decisions, your directions, your plans, or your goals are going to be influenced by everything and anything, and you're going to start to find that life gets complicated and that people around you start to get hurt, and including yourself. Or you can live life for what is only temporary. You can live it for, for your physical appearance, you can live it for your bank account. You can live it for your possessions. You can even live it for your spouse or the want of a spouse. You can live it for your kids or live vicariously through your kids. But guess what? It all grows up. It all gets old. It all goes away. It will never, ever satisfy. Or you can live for what is eternal. Now, the first step of eternal living is to know God. See, it's no, no good to read this book if you don't know the author. Do you know God? Do you know Jesus? That's the first step to eternal living. The second step is spending the rest of our lives getting to know him. It's really that simple. Will this year be the year of the Bible for you and I? 
Will this year be the year we learn God's word and pray that God will give us a, a love for God's word and empower us to live God's word? As Darren Patrick, that guy that we're going to do that, he said, be bold in your resolutions to change. Be bolder in your dependence on God's power. Will that be you and I, us as a church this year? So I'm asking every one of you, I'm inviting every one of you, I'm challenging every one of you to join us and let's be servants and make servants this year to learn and live and, 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 and love God's word. And if we do, it'll affect every year of our life. It will make us more God-focused and less me-focused. It will fuel us and fill us and focus us through good times and in bad. And I promise you this, William Brackley said it, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. Now, that's a mantra for 2016, is it? Lord, I want to be fearless, I want to be weirdly happy, and I want to be in just a little bit of trouble all the time. And if you will get in this book, and you will read it, and pray it, and apply it, and repeat, that will be you and I. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Let's make this the year of the Bible. We have 10,000 reasons to sing about it. Let's close in prayer and sing a song before we go. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. And again, Lord, I do pray that my friends, family, brothers and sisters and guests here have heard a better sermon than I have preached. Lord, allow me to rest in you now and not myself. My God and my Savior, I pray with George Whitfield who on January 6th of 1740 said, Lord, the people were polite. They listened, but I didn't think they heard. Father God, would you, through your Holy Spirit and the power of your living word, cause the people here not to just listen, but to hear and to respond not because of me, but in spite of me. Because you are good and you are holy. And we truly have 10,000 reasons to celebrate you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.